Sponsor Collide is an endpoint security solution that helps your end users solve their security problems themselves. They get smarter about security and you get more compliant computing. Find out more at collide.com slash day two cloud. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day two cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and we're bringing it today with part two of our Deploying Kubernetes series with our guest, Michael Levon. Michael is a leader in Kubernetes and containerization. You can find out all about him at michaellevon.net. And of course, as we mentioned along the way, he is the host of the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. And in today's show, Ned, we uh, we get into, we did the, the, the building of clusters last week, and this week we're talking about managing clusters. What did you take away from this episode? You know, I think one of the biggest things I took away was the philosophical point behind managing Kubernetes and the fact that it's all API driven. So if you're coming from a CLI background where you're used to interacting thing with things at the command line or through scripts, it, things shift a little bit with Kubernetes. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Indeed. Enjoy your conversation with Michael Levon. You can find him on Twitter at the NJ DevOps guy. Michael, you came back for part two, and uh, I, got, I got to address what, for me, is the elephant in the room, and, and that's the axiom you kind of hear out there, that Kubernetes is complex. Is Kubernetes really that much more complex than traditional application deployment platforms we've done with VMs for years, where you got middle boxes, and you can do layer seven application rewriting, and there's networking wizardry that goes on, and there's application performance monitoring, and, and all that stuff? So I think the answer to that is... Kubernetes is a data center in itself. So like throughout, you know, history from, from a tech perspective, we would have platforms or tools, whatever you want to call it, that did VMs and hypervisors and networking and security and storage and applications and yada, yada. With Kubernetes, it's all under one roof. It's all one thing. And you're managing all of it with an API. And because of that, it can be extremely complex. So yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll argue that if somebody thinks that Kubernetes isn't complex, they have not, they, they didn't dive in enough yet. <laughs> well, so, so, so to put a finer point on it, is it more complex than the way we used to do things? No, it, it's not more complex. Like, like networking isn't a new thing. Storage isn't a new thing. Deploying applications isn't a new thing. The only difference is you're managing your infrastructure with an API. You're managing mm. your platform with an API. So that's the big difference. But no, like, you know, networking is networking, storage is storage, infrastructure is infrastructure. In fact, I tell everybody all the time, like, you know, when people reach out to me, hey, how do I get into Kubernetes? What's the first step? And I say, do you have a sysadmin background? Have you managed uh, data centers and, and all this? And if they say no, I say that's the best place to start. Mm. So, so, oh, well, actually that's, that's kind of comforting. So if you've got a background in multi-tiered applications with load balancers and firewalls and all that stuff, you have a basis upon which to learn Kubernetes because you'll kind of know what's going on. You're 70% of the way there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of mental translation from this is how I did it previously. And this is how I'm intended to do it now. I guess another portion of that is you're taking a bunch of different job functions 
that would be typically separate people. So you had your storage admins and your network admins, and maybe you had like load balancer admins that were their own specialized group, right? And now uh, you're compressing all of that into a single person, potentially, who's now responsible to understand the complexities of all these different things that are under the Kubernetes umbrella. And I would argue that's almost... Uh, maybe one of the problems is the idea that you can compress the knowledge from all these different uh, arenas down into a single human being. Yeah, I think that it's a huge problem right now. My recommendation always to every organization that I talk to is you should have a high velocity team. You should have five to six people on the team managing your Kubernetes environment. One of them is a security expert. One of them is a networking expert. One of them is an infrastructure expert. One of them has a software development background. Unfortunately, organizations don't do that. But, and I think that's one of the biggest problems right now, why people think Kubernetes is just complex as a whole and they can't implement it, et cetera. But I think that if more organizations had high velocity teams like that, implementing Kubernetes would be far smoother. But Michael, I have one Kubernetes. I just need one person. One thing I know is because I've done a little bit of the training for the the Kubernetes uh, Certified Administrator or CKA certification. I, I did some training for that. And one thing that I noticed about the training is it is extremely CLI heavy. You are just hitting, being, being hit over the head with kubectl or kubectl or however you want to say that. And I'm curious, in the real world, are people actually spending all their time at the command line running kubectl or are they using something else to manage kubernetes yeah they definitely shouldn't be uh if you're if you're spending all of your time using kubectl you're you're probably kubernetesing ing wrong um <laughs> you should be you should be doing things like you know implementing a gitops workflow you should be doing things like deploying via ca cd um i like for example, if you're doing some type of local de- local development and you're running kubectl apply on a Kubernetes manifest, that's fine. But like, there shouldn't be people dedicated in production just like running kubectl apply or kubectl create all day. Absolutely not. Yeah, I remember uh, it was it was asking me to do things like create a persistent volume and then you know attach that to a pod and doing all these other things using kubectl. In the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't think you would actually do it this way. <laughs> yeah, not on the local terminal. No, like you would automate that process in in whatever automation tool you're using or platform that you're using. But a lot of that automation, like you're still going to need to understand and know the kubectl commands. So you still need to use them and run them. But the way that you're using them and the running them is going to be different from the certification. So like, you know, if you go to the certification, like you said, it's all lab based, you have two hours, you're doing everything on a terminal manually you're not going to do it like that manually. You know, you're going to have like maybe a CI CD pipeline or, or whatever running the commands for you or, or script that's running the commands for you to get all that up and running. You're not going to just be sitting on the terminal like that. But the tools that you'd be using instead for your automation are not actually making kubectl calls. They're hitting the Kubernetes API directly, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So like, for example, if you think about tools like Flux or Argo CD, which are, you know, GitOps based tools, they're looking at changes in your source control. And if, you know, if your your repo, if you have a Kubernetes manifest in there, if it changes, uh, it's making an API call to Kubernetes. But technically it is all still doing the same thing. Because remember, when you're using kubectl commands, what is it doing? It's making an API call. When you run kubectl apply, kubectl create, you're just using a a, a post. You're you're making a post API call. 
pretty much what you're doing. You're just, you're making API calls all day in Kubernetes because Kubernetes itself is an API. All of the resources that you create, it's all driven by an API. So regardless of if you're using kubectl or you're using a uh, CIC pipeline or you're using GitOps or whatever the case may be, you're always making API calls. So uh, underneath the hood, it's all doing the same thing. Yeah, my first exposure to a model like that was sitting in uh, at a Juniper site, and uh, the folks were talking about how the Junos CLI is, in fact, just an API client. That's all it really is. When you are making a call or typing a command in at that Junos CLI, it's doing an API call in the background, and they even showed it to us. There was a network capture where they showed the API call being made. And they said their journey to automation as Juniper was a lot easier because of that, because not every network operating system was built that way. And so some other folks were struggling mightily to know how to move on from a a CLI-oriented configuration stack to being friendly to automation tools and that kind of thing. Well, okay. So then if that's the case, is it possible with all the Kubernetes-related tools and the automation that's out there, do we not see kubernetes anymore eventually mike do we actually use have a a, maybe we end up using a platform that it might be kate's at its heart but it's abstracted away from us in a way that we don't know or care that it's kubernetes under there one thousand percent at some point what we know of kubernetes today will go away whether it's called kubernetes or whether it's called something else the platform itself will eventually die and go away the thing that won't is what Kubernetes gave us because you know under underneath the hood, right? Taking taking out the the technical marketing and the buzzwords and the Kubernetes is making our lives easier. What Kubernetes is doing is it's allowing us to manage our entire data center with an API, making API calls for storage, for applications, for infrastructure. It's allowing us to manage everything with an API, or, or rather, manage a platform with an API. That underlying piece to the puzzle is ne- is not going away, at least anytime soon, unless and until we come up with something where nobody uses APIs anymore because they're using whatever, that's when it'll go away. But what Kubernetes gave us, the ability that it gave us will not go away, which is managing everything with an API. Kubernetes itself will eventually move on and be something else or whatever the case may be. Well, okay. So being very specific here, you think Kubernetes... The Kubernetes APIs that uh, have become kind of the de facto standard now for managing a data center, you think we might as an industry move away from those, but the model making API calls to manage our data centers are going to stay? Right. Yeah. I mean, eventually Kubernetes is is not going to be a thing anymore, you know, whether it's five years or Eventually you mean years, I assume. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to see Kubernetes around for a very long time. And what's going to end up happening is this is just my prediction. Kubernetes isn't just going to like go away one day and there's going to be a new thing, you know, like there's not going to, I don't think that there's going to be this whole orchestration wars like we saw with Docker Swarm and Mesos and Kubernetes, you know, maybe we'll see Nomad in there, you know, whatever, but the, the whole idea of Kubernetes is going to eventually move away as a platform, but the underlying piece that we get from it, managing everything with an API, that's not going to go away. Now, in terms of when it's going to go away, every every company right now is focusing on Kubernetes or orchestration in general and containerization. With that being said, by the time everybody ends up implementing it, which we're not even there yet, not a lot of organizations are doing it, 
couple of years to get everybody actually utilizing Kubernetes. And then that's going to have to sit in a data center or wherever for years. So we probably got a good 10 to 15 years of this genre before it ends up moving into something else. You know, I, this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, you guys know Eric, right? Ned, I know you do. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, we were having a conversation the other day and we were just talking about Kubernetes and stuff and just like, you know, my focus points around it and all that. And he, he said something that I really liked. Kubernetes right now is what uh, vSphere was in 2005, 2006. Hmm. So like, we're right there. Like we're just, we're just breaking into it. The door is just opened. Right. And if I think about where I was at with VMware in that time range, right? I was probably setting up some of my first clusters, first real clusters and doing some basic V motions and really just finally glomming onto what VMs could do. And I was working at a very small company. I was working at like a 250 person company. And so that's probably how I would be exposed to Kubernetes today is several years down the line after it's already kind of made its way through some of the more bleeding edge or, or larger companies and now trickling down. And yeah, I, the death of VMware has been um, wildly exaggerated. They're still doing extremely well. And you, you would be hard pressed to walk into a data center that's not running VMware somewhere. So the idea that Kubernetes is just at that point, that's 16 years ago. Oh my God, that's 16 years ago. <laughs> okay, deep breath. Um, the, the idea that that's 16 years ago, uh, if we're at that same inflection point for Kubernetes, then it is still going to be a force to be reckoned with in 20 years. Absolutely. 100%. And, and yeah, you know what? And we're kind of already seeing a transition, which is interesting. On On the last episode, we were talking about the fact that you can have like Fargate profiles and EKS, for example, now. So literally with a Fargate profile and EKS, you're not managing the control plane anymore and you're not managing the worker nodes anymore. So we're actually already seeing, we're just doing everything with an API. We're seeing it, we're there, we're there. So it's it's just a matter of how much more we get there at this point. Yeah, wow, that is that is an interesting way to think about it. Is that the control plane is actually the important part, that, right. that API and everything else, and, and how the worker nodes get instantiated and are managed is going to just evolve and change over time. So with that in mind, where we let's kind of shift back to managing a Kubernetes cluster, which was ostensibly the topic of the conversation. In terms of keeping my Kubernetes clusters up to date, you know, I probably do want to eventually take advantage of new features as they're rolled out. How up to date should I be keeping my Kubernetes clusters? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever want to be more than one major version behind. So like, you know, 1.25 is out now from the Kubernetes API. If you're running 1.23, you should probably start to think about your move to 1.24. But, you know, it's it's also going to depend on what's being added and removed. So for example, since I believe it was 1.22 or 1.23, PSP or pod security policies, which is like essentially what OPA is doing at this point, was deprecated in mm -hmm. 1.25 they're completely removed right so if you got an entire environment right now running pod security policies yeah you gotta you gotta think about <laughs> what your path forward is you know if you try to just upgrade to 1.25 you're 
half your your environment may may break and die in a fire. So there's going to be that piece. There's also the security piece as well. Listen, Kubernetes is at the heart of it. A bunch of apps. Apps have vulnerabilities. You may have something in 1.23 that was fixed in 1.25 from a vulnerability perspective. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, just an example. But moving forward, of course, we're going to see that, you know, everything has vulnerabilities. You're going to want to upgrade from a vulnerability perspective. Everything that we know about upgrading versions, just in infrastructure in general that we've been doing for 20 years, it's, it's the same concepts. When you upgrade Kubernetes, what does it actually mean to upgrade a Kubernetes? Because we know it's it, the control plane is made up of multiple components. So what am I actually updating when I apply, when I move from 1.24 to 1.25? Yeah, so you're upgrading a few things. Number one, you're going to be upgrading all of the control plane components, etcd, the API server, scheduler, yada, yada. You may also be upgrading your container runtime, which we haven't even talked about, and it's a humongous discussion in itself. But the container runtime is also being updated. And then your uh, version of the kubectl that you're using, the command line, is being updated. Yeah. Okay. So, that's so it's, it's overall the API that you're updating. The API contains all of these different components, which is, which is all being updated. And again, that upgrade path is going to be 1000% different. So like, uh, based on where you're running it. So like with kubeadm, for example, there is a command, I think it's kubeadm upgrade, and you specify what version you want to go to, mm-hmm. you know, in AKS, for example, I'm not recommending this per se to do it this way. I just did it to see what would happen. But there is like on the AZ Cli when you use AZ AKS, there's an upgrade command, and you could just figure out what version you want to go to and go do an upgrade. So it's there, there's different methods to upgrade depending on, you know, where you're running. Gotcha. Okay. And in terms of the upgrade process, mm-hmm. do you recommend doing an in-place upgrade where I'm actually like upgrading the software on each node? Or do you recommend more of a, uh, a roll, roll out, roll in where I'm rolling in a new node and retiring an old one and just kind of doing a rolling upgrade instead? Yeah, I, I think rolling upgrades are usually the way to go. Um, especially, like for example, if you're running kubeadm, you can upgrade one at a time to make sure that everything's working properly. You know, you can upgrade your, sorry, you can upgrade your control plane components and then you can upgrade your worker nodes. And then obviously you can roll back if you want to. Um, And the same rule apply. I I know we're talking about clusters right now, but I just want to put the words out there. The same rules apply for upgrading pods. So you have, you know, it's essentially like blue green deployments almost. You have uh, something called rolling updates to where you can, you know, and there's multiple different ways like canary deployments and stuff, but you can have, you know, one subset of your pods running version 1.1 of your application. If you want to upgrade to version 1.2, you can do a rolling update to where some customers are still on 1.1, some are on 1.2, et cetera. I did not expect you to say that because I guess I'm thinking about the OpenStack model, which was you don't upgrade OpenStack in place. You build a new cluster, an OpenStack cluster off to the side, migrate your apps to it because that's just the only way you can do it and manage the risk effectively. But you're saying with Kubernetes, I can actually do a staggered in-place upgrade. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would recommend that. I wouldn't recommend creating a new cluster and just trying to migrate over. Yeah, from from a platform perspective, we saw that with OpenStack. We saw that with like ESXi, for example. We always wanted to create new clusters and move everything over. Never wanted to do in place. But yeah, with Kubernetes, it's absolutely doable. 
Well, the implication there is there's some kind of interversion compatibility between at least the previous and the current, whereas mm-hmm. you couldn't count on that very often with lots. If, if you were going to a new version, it was kind of an all or nothing approach. Right, right. Yeah, with Kubernetes, it's very different because everything is more or less from an API perspective. So you have different uh, major versions, you have different minor versions, there's always different upgrade paths. Like if you if you Google around, like what's the upgrade path from, you know, 1.23 to 1.24, it's going to show you step by step, like you should go to this minor version, or maybe you don't have to, it's all going to depend on, you know, what minor version you're on and what major version you're on. Michael, I want to move on to sort of the hands-on day-to-day operational stuff. Now, we said earlier in this episode that most folks are not doing what tends to be taught to you in certified Kubernetes administrator training, which is a lot of kubectl commands, a lot of, you know, building YAML and uh, kubectl apply and, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, But could you at least explain that traditional CKA training style approach as a baseline? And then, then maybe I guess we should transition to what, what, what happens in the real world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So just to, just to clarify those commands that you're using, like the kubectl commands, um, building Kubernetes manifests, all of that and, and, and uh, applying them and deploying them that still does occur, but in production, you're just not doing it on the terminal. Like there's just not a person sitting there on the terminal typing a gajillion kubectl commands. Um, but those commands are still being used. It's just being used from an abstracted perspective or from an automated perspective. Yeah. So essentially with the CKA, and this is, you know, a, a certification that I actually recommend people going through. Um, I'm not one for certifications. I have very few and they have expired very long ago. So I never say like, hey, you should go get all of these certifications. But with the Kubernetes uh, certifications, it's actually all hands on. So like there's not multiple choice, like you're chucked into an environment and you're like, go figure it out and go deploy it and go fix it. So you're actually getting that hands-on experience, which is very, very cool. And I certainly do wish more certifications went down that path. So from the CKA perspective, you're essentially, you know, in a terminal or in multiple terminals and you have certain scenarios that you have to fix or that you have to deploy. And that's a combination of using kubectl commands. That's a combination of running YAML to be able to, you know, deploy your Kubernetes resources to edit them and all that. We're taking a short break from the podcast to tell you about sponsor Collide, K-O-L-I-D-E. Collide is an endpoint security solution, and they use a resource that most of us in IT would never really think about, the end users, because end users are where problems start, right? Not solutions. Well, Collide challenges that thinking because if you can leverage your end users to mitigate the security issues that they are carrying around in their backpacks, that is a huge win. Now, let's say you're doing your device management the traditional way with an MDM. Well, you know the joy of loading agents onto employee devices. Agents impact performance and they can be a privacy horror show, privacy being a thing all your users know about now. So Collide does things differently. Instead of forcing changes on your users, Collide notifies folks via Slack when their devices are insecure and then provides step-by-step instructions on how to solve the problem. And using this Collide approach, the interaction feels feels more friendly, more educational, more inclusive, and less intrusive because now IT isn't doing something to your device. Instead, you're working with IT to help keep the company secure. It's the whole attitude of, we're all in this together. And as IT, you still get the views you need into the managed device fleet. 
Collide provides a single dashboard that lets you monitor the security of everything, whether the endpoints are running on Mac, Windows, or Linux, so you can easily demonstrate compliance to your auditors, customers, and the C-suite. Give Collide a shot to meet your compliance goals by putting users first. Visit collide.com slash day2cloud to find out how. And if you visit collide.com slash day2cloud, they're going to send you a goodie bag, including a t-shirt just for activating a free trial. That is K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day2cloud. And now back to today's episode. So, so that approach, you said, is... That feels very manual. Um, even if I'm not doing them by hand, even if I'm using automated tools to do that, it still feels m- manual, I think is the, is the best way to do it. It's, 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 it's a process that I'm engaging to bring up a thing. Is that typically what's going on? Or, uh, I mean, you've blogged about some other tooling, more of a GitOps approach. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that the quote unquote right way to do it? The, the GitOps way? Yeah, I would say so. For deploying Kubernetes resources, Going with a GitOps approach, whether you're using Argo, whether you're using Flux, whether you're using one of the other GitOps controllers out there, it absolutely is the best way to deploy in today's world. Before GitOps, what we would have to do is, you know, let's say we had a CI/CD pipeline, well, we would have to run a whole bunch of kubectl apply or create commands in our CI/CD pipeline, which it was automated, but it was like, you know, automating a manual effort. It feels like duct tape. But with GitOps, they're all it's it's an actual controller so each tool that you use it's a controller so it it feels native from a kubernetes perspective just like there's a deployment controller there's an ingress controller there's a gitops controller and you manage it and utilize it the same way so it's declarative it feels very native in a kubernetes methodology and you're not running a bunch of commands you know because it's a controller because that controller is installed on your kubernetes cluster it's way more uh it's it's how can i put it it's a way um it's a way more repeatable process versus having to you know put a whole bunch of kubectl commands in in a ci cd pipeline or deploying it via your terminal well walk us through what that feels like then because for those of us that are very cli centric or have been for much of our careers and we're used to making things happen manually what you just described there's a controller and there's a GitOps thingy and it's all magical and there's a pipeline. It all feels like so hands-off and, and a little bit convoluted. It feels like it's out of our control what's going on. And, mm-hmm. and we engineers tend to be very, we really want control of things. Sure. So the good thing is it's it's not, you're, you're not losing any more control as if you're using any other controller. So like when you're deploying a Kubernetes pod, it's the same thing as you know deploying via GitOps because it's all using a controller on the back end. So here's what it kind of looks like. First, you deploy the controller. So let's say you're using Argo. You deploy Argo, which it just runs as pods inside of your Kubernetes cluster. And then at that point, you can you know utilize Argo and you can go to the UI and use Argo commands and all of that. And then you set up application deployments via Argo. So for example, let's say you have a Kubernetes manifest that's pointing to a repo called test. You would tell Argo, hey, I have an application that's sitting in the test repository. Check it, make sure that it's deployed. And then it's pretty much hands off at that point. What ends up happening is, let's say you go into the test repository and you have your Kubernetes manifest there and you change container image version from 1.1 to 1.2. 
Argo is doing interval check-ins. So, and you can set this up. You want it every 30 seconds, every 60 seconds, whatever. It's going to look at the repository. Hey, are we up to date? Hey, are we up to date? AKA is my current state the same thing as my desired state, which is what a controller does. So it all comes back to what Kubernetes controllers do as a whole. Kubernetes controllers confirm that your current state is your desired state. If you did a Kubernetes deployment and you had two pods in that deployment, it's the controller's job to say, do I still have two pods running? Do I still have two pods running? If you have one pod running, the controller says, oh, deploy a second one. Mm. Same thing with GitOps. GitOps is doing the same thing. That's why people are moving towards GitOps because it's a declarative way. It's it's a native way to manage Kubernetes deployments. So that GitOps controller is going to look at that test repository and it's going to say, am I deployed properly? Am I deployed properly? If you if you change that Kubernetes manifest, it's going to say, oh, container M has changed from 1.1 to 1.2. I'm going to run it. I'm going to update it. Oh, replicas changed from three to four. Got to deploy another one. Mm-hmm. This reminds me a lot of the debate between the way that Puppet tended to approach things versus the way that Ansible tended to approach things. And let me just kind of unpack that for a second, right? The the Ansible way was very much, I'm pushing a configuration out to a destination machine. So I have this Ansible playbook, and when I run Ansible, it goes and connects via SSH to a machine or to a switch or whatever, and pushes the configuration onto that switch. It has some sort of evaluation to check the current status of the switch, so it can be item potent, but it's a push mechanism, where I, whereas Puppet had the capability to install an agent essentially on all the machines. And then that agent would run and do what Argo is doing. It would check in periodically to the Puppet server and go, hey, what's the current configuration? Has it changed? No? Okay, well, I'm just going to check locally and make sure I'm still compliant. Uh, but if the configuration had changed, it would pull down a new copy of that configuration and do an evaluation loop and then apply the updated configuration to the machine. So it's like we've been down this path before, right? Like this is not new ground we're treading. It's just a different, we have to do that shift in our mind from this is what we called it when we were doing it with virtual machines and Puppet and Ansible. And now we're calling it GitOps and, and Argo. Is there more to it than that? Or am I oversimplifying it? Or No, you're spot on. If you look at any of my content, my blogs, my videos, anything, if I'm when I'm describing GitOps, I always say the same thing. GitOps is configuration management for Kubernetes. It's no different. It's the same thing. Like, you know, for example, I used to use PowerShell DSC a lot, which was like your configuration management for, for your PowerShell environments. And you would set up intervals where it would constantly check in. Same thing. We're just calling it something different. Yep. Same, same technology we've been using with Puppet and Ansible. That makes me feel better, right? Like, <laughs> old- yeah, I mean, I, I think the, um, the reality with like everything new that we see it's always based on something else. Like mm-hmm. very rarely does anything come out that's like new. It's always based on something else. I mean, to get to a philosophical point that you brought up earlier, the fact that Kubernetes is the the final shift towards API first interaction. Mm-hmm. I think that is a true paradigm shift. Sure. Yes. Is a mapping of what we had to what is now. But I think the, the big change and you you pinpointed it exactly is we're moving to uh, an API first realm where everything is 
configurable via the API. And Kubernetes does that, the cloud operators do it. And I think that's kind of the operational model moving forward for IT. Absolutely. Yeah. So so to I guess to rephrase what I said before is it's it's not that we don't have new philosophies and new ways of doing things. It's that the underlying pieces don't change. So like for example, yes, we're moving towards a more API driven approach. But like APIs are APIs. We've had APIs for years. <laughs> so it's all the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, if I go this GitOps route, am I making my Kubernetes environment more complex or less complex? Or did I just ask the wrong question? Sorry, guys. My my camera's about to die. So if it does, that's why my camera goes off. I was trying to change it. But uh, I'm sorry. Could you ask me that question one more time? Apologies. If I go the GitOps route, which sounds cool, like that's probably what I should be doing, but am I making my Kubernetes environment more complex or less complex? Or, or is that not even the right question to ask? Yeah, I mean, you're making your environment more efficient at that point, because it, without GitOps, how do you deploy? You got to run kubectl commands locally or in a CICD pipeline or something like that. With GitOps, you're just making your deployments less complex and you're making things more efficient. Yeah, and no, I but get on the flip side, you got to learn GitOps <laughs> and you have to learn a new tool. So, you know, it's, you know, yeah. Uh, to that point, uh, aside from the GitOps uh, way, what other tools am I going to be adopting as I move into managing my Kubernetes cluster? What, can, can you give us a, just a broad overview of either the types of tools or specific tools you see being used out in the wild? Yeah. So if you go to, I forget the exact link, I will, I will give it to you guys so you can put it in the show notes. There's a CNCF landscape page and it goes, it shows that's all a, of the tools. That's a bad page. That's a bad page. <laughs> you know what page I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. So what tools are you going to learn? Well, I guess it depends on which one of the thousands <laughs> Go with, <laughs> but well, you, you, well, pick pick some highlights though, because we got right. Argo and Flux. You've mentioned tied to, to yep. GitOps. Maybe, maybe talk about those two and some other ones that you see commonly sure. deployed out there. Yeah, so I think that there's like this. There's an overarching category, you know. So like, if you look at service mesh, there's a bunch of tools. If you look at monitoring, there's a bunch of tools. If you look at observability, it's a bunch of tools. Choose your own adventure, but. What I will say is there are certain tools that you'll most likely see in each category. So for example, from a service mesh perspective, you're probably gonna see Istio or Linkerd. From a secrets management perspective, you're probably gonna see Vault, HashiCorp Vault, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't Kubernetes centric, of course, but a lot of people are using it for secrets management. From a monitoring and observability perspective, a lot of the times you'll see Prometheus and Grafana. So there are a ton of tools out there, but what I would say is this, don't focus too much on the tools that you're using, focus more on what you're trying to implement. So for example, if you know, hey, I need to implement monitoring and observability, well, we could talk about tools all day. We could talk about container insights on AWS. We could talk about Azure Monitor. We could talk about Prometheus. We could talk about Grafana. But the question isn't necessarily what tools you're using. The question is, what are you trying to accomplish? So with you know Istio, for example, great service mesh. But the question is, why do you need a service mesh? You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so I can I can get mired down the rat hole of tools because they're cool and I see people blog about them, but I need to start at the proper foundation and 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 what that is. Why am I doing this? And if I as soon as I can answer why I'm doing this, then what the tools are that fill in that gap come into focus. It's got to be fair to point out that that CNCF page that we're talking about with the endless number of logos and uh, and project names. Not all of those are equal in popularity. A lot of them are very similar to what another one on that same list does. And there may not be one right answer. But as you said, Michael, there tends to be a few projects that percolate up to the top. And so getting your head around those and you know some of the ones you mentioned there would be, uh, would be the right place to start. You're going to find more community. You're going to find more documentation uh, around them or people's blogs that show you how to use these tools. So you've got that getting started point. Um, now I do want to drill into one thing here though, and that is monitoring. If, if I am monitoring a Kubernetes cluster, man, there are so many layers in that stack. It just seems a little bit overwhelming and complex. I I don't want a generic tool that assumes I know what I want to be monitoring, like, like the network monitoring systems of old, like, hope you know what SNMP stuff you want to monitor because we're not going to tell you. Um, so, okay. Is there some kind of a go-to monitoring solution for Kubernetes that helps you get started? Absolutely. So the really cool thing about Kubernetes is it's not even about which tool to go with. It's about the metrics endpoint. So you have a metrics endpoint on a Kubernetes cluster, which essentially it exposes every metric. If you set it up in that fashion, you can uh, decide if you want to expose certain metrics for certain APIs and certain resources. But once you expose that metrics endpoint and you expose the resources to like pods, deployments, whatever you want to be able to get captured in that metrics endpoint, it's just there. Like at that point, it's just there on the monitoring or observability tool that you're using. So for example- Well, hang on, hang on a second. second. You're saying saying monitoring endpoint. I don't know that that's obvious what that is. Does this mean I'm telling Kubernetes, here's some things I want you to expose, and then there's an endpoint created there that I can now pull? Yeah, so on the Kubernetes uh, control plane, you're going to have that metrics endpoint. So it's literally just that slash metrics for almost all of the Kubernetes resources. So for pods, for deployments, et cetera, there's always a metrics endpoint. And then that metrics endpoint gets consumed by whatever monitoring and observability tool you're using. So just like with network stuff, there's SNMP. And if the SNMP OID is populated by that particular device, I can pull it and I can get back data in whatever format the MIB tells me it is. There's a metrics endpoint that I can pull and... Again, I, I would kind of need to know what it is. So I'm assuming there's something that describes for me what the metric is that I'm pulling and what it means to me. Um, but okay, so that's fine that there's all those metrics. So you're telling me the tools that I'm choosing are going to know about all these endpoints and start me off with a, a good set of metrics endpoints that I should be monitoring? Yeah, so the good thing is, is that each tool it only needs to know about the metrics endpoint in the Kubernetes API. The metrics endpoint gets like, it consumes the data from the pods, from your ingress, from your deployments or whatever else you're exposing to the metrics endpoint. Once your Kubernetes resources and objects are exposed to the metrics endpoint, that metrics endpoint is the only thing that gets consumed by your monitoring and observability tool. So at that point, all the data is there you just have to expose it to the metrics endpoint. So luckily, it don't like your monitoring and observability tool only has to look at that metrics endpoint. That's it. 
So I can I have to pick and choose within my Kubernetes configuration what I want to exp- what elements within the API I want to expose to the metrics endpoint. So it's not like Kubernetes is just loaded with thousands of metrics endpoints that can be consumed. I have to like basically turn the switch on. For some Kubernetes resources, yes. For the basic ones, like your pods, your deployments, yeah. your services, it's the metrics endpoint is on by default. But yeah. if you have like a certain third-party operator or controller that you're using for like maybe like ingress or whatever the case may be, you may have to turn on the metrics endpoint. Well, not not turn on the metrics endpoint, but you would have to turn on metrics to be consumed by the metrics endpoint. Now, does this tie to open telemetry in some way? Yes. So open telemetry is observability that isn't tied into a specific platform. So for example, Prometheus is an observability tool, but of course you have to use Prometheus for that. Open telemetry is you can pull metrics from multiple places into one location. But here's like the weird thing about open telemetry, and maybe I'm thinking about it the wrong way, but open telemetry is whatever you want to call it, an endpoint, a platform tool in itself. Hmm. So then aren't you tied to open telemetry if you use open telemetry? <laughs> so it's like, it's weird. Like it's it's like an inception thing for me that like, I don't fully, maybe I don't fully understand like the point, but the, when I see open telemetry, I'm kind of just like, you could use any observability tool to do the same thing. You're not, you're not sold on it there. yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sold on the idea. Like, I like the fact that the, the whole idea behind open telemetry is like your open source version of, you know, getting observability metrics, uh, whether it's traces, whether it's your logs, whether it's your, your, um, what, what am I, what am I forgetting? Traces, logs, metrics. There you go. But I, I kind of feel like it's doing what other, tools and platforms are already doing. Uh, I think the whole idea behind it is like to not be locked in, but then you're kind of locked into open telemetry. <laughs> so, <Okay>. so it's <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 I, I, it's arguably a path that I haven't gone down incredibly in depth. So I'll, I'll say that I could be wrong here. Whoever's listening, if you want to tell me I'm wrong, please feel free to do so. I, I love knowing when I'm wrong. So maybe there's something that I'm missing from the open telemetry piece. Now, as I'm setting up my monitoring platform, whatever it is, I've got my monitoring um, or my metrics endpoints that are there. Are there, very useful things I very much want to be monitoring because they tell me important things like, uh, I don't know, resource exhaustion or something within my cluster. Yeah. So at that point, you could set up, for example, like an audit policy to where you can describe in your policy what exactly you want to consume. You can consume everything, which is obviously going to be a lot, or you can consume certain resources or, well, yeah, certain Kubernetes resources and objects. And uh, what if you were setting this up, what would be the resources and objects you'd be monitoring for darn sure? Yeah. So I would say from my perspective, I turn it all on in the beginning 
And then I see what I actually need and what and I regret actually it want. And then go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, cause here's the thing, like when you, when you're uh, retrieving metrics, right. For a pot, right. What you're actually doing is you're retrieving metrics for an application. So in that application, when you're retrieving those logs, those metrics, those traces, there may be some things that you care about and some things that you don't care about, but you don't know until you know. Once you know, you can say, oh, okay, I'm going to turn off, you know, the metric for this or whatever, because I actually don't need it. And, and it also depends on what path you're taking from an observability perspective. So uh, monitoring is about looking at data. Observability is about doing something with the data. So monitoring, you know, you have your graphs, you can see what's going on, your CPU utilization, memory, network bandwidth, et cetera. Observability is about, oh, I have this trace that keeps failing and I need to perform some type of action on it. So it also depends on what your end goal of monitoring and observability is. My end goal is for everything to be amazing and stay exactly. green. That's what I want. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And 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 that's it. And that's exactly why I tell everybody like turn it all on and see what you need and see what you don't need. Cause you can always, you know, flip the switches. You know, like let's say you have an audit policy and you're consuming everything. At some point, you may say, you know what, for this, I only need to consume logging in and authentication for, you know, whatever mm -hmm. Kubernetes resource. Yeah. So it, it kind of all depends on, you know, what your end goal there is. Because here's the thing, just like with any other tech stack or any other tool or any other platform, you could turn it all on and kind of see what happens. And then maybe you might not need a piece of it and then you turn it off, but you really don't know until you know. Well, and there's some things that sound much more interesting data points than they turn out to be in practice. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. And then there's also the more obscure ones that you don't think you need until you have a problem and you're troubleshooting. Then you find out, oh, if I'd been monitoring that, then I would have seen this coming. And exactly. a lot of that, you just, you don't know until you have had some experience and then, you know. Yeah, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And then at that point, you can set up certain alarms or certain, you know, repeatable processes. Let's say something in your application fails, your observability tool picks it up. You can then create some type of alert based on that metric. You can even maybe create some type of repeatable process for that metric. Okay. Well, Michael, this has been, uh, well, this is the end of uh, the part two. And uh, those of you listening, we recorded part one and part two back to back. So we've been at this uh, kind of a marathon recording session here for a couple of hours, getting all this information in. And uh, Michael, as a reminder to the audience, you are the host of the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast on the Packet Pushers podcast network. And what kind of conversations have you been having on that show? Yeah, so it's been, <laughs> funny enough, when I first started the podcast, I was like, you know, I feel like it's going to be in a specific area of Kubernetes. Maybe it's going to be more about Kubernetes in the cloud or whatever. But because of the uh, vast amount of guests that I've had on and the different walks of life because Kubernetes is just such a beast in itself. I've just been having conversations about everything and anything Kubernetes from a production perspective. So anything from how to deploy with Terraform to what service mesh to use to how to think about security, it's, it's literally been everything and anything. So if you do listen to the podcast, Everything from a how to run Kubernetes in production perspective, that's what it's all about. Okay. Very practical then, hands-on and, uh, and engineering friendly is what I'm hearing there. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Very, very engineering focused. Uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not throwing any fluff into that podcast. It's all engineering heavy, ready to go implement these ideas into production. All right. And Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Yep. So on LinkedIn, pretty heavily, you can just look up Michael Levan, L-E-V-A-N. On Twitter at the NJ DevOps guy, you can also check out my GitHub at admin turn DevOps. And I post a lot of blogs on Dev2, so Dev2 slash the NJ DevOps guy. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us and for making the time. Uh, and if you are listening there, you missed last week's episode, the part one. Don't don't miss that. That was where we focused on building clusters rather than managing them, managing them being the focus of today's show. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in, by the way. Again, you are an awesome human with impeccable taste in podcasts. And as Michael was just describing, his Kubernetes Unpacked podcast is uh, is great. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, and then subscribe. And if you have suggestions for future Day 2 Cloud episodes, Ned and I want to hear them, you can hit us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show or go up to day2cloud.io and fill out the request form. And if you are looking for more folks in our world to interact with, you can do that at the Packet Pushers free Slack group. It is open to everybody, vendors included. Just go to packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Again, that's packetpushers.net slash Slack. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 